here we are again. Welcome once again to the Irish in Sweden podcast. My name is Philip O'Connor, coming to you from my little basement bunker here close to St. Eriksplan in Stockholm. I hope you're enjoying the beginnings of the Swedish spring, no matter where you are in this very, very long and skinny nation of ours. Uh, as I'm talking to you, we're just getting prepared actually for the first Gaelic football tournament of the year, which is going to be down in Copenhagen. It's been a very, very busy week over the last... Yeah, the last seven days or so have been absolutely mad. And it was funny because like last week I was trying to put together the podcast and, you know, one of these days, like near misses the whole time. It's like, oh, we have this interview. Oh, but we can't use it. And then you have to find something else and do somebody else. Oh, he's on a plane and I need to talk to that person, that kind of thing. And this week it was the other way around. There's people queuing up to be interviewed. But the problem was that I was in Gotland, uh, that big island in the Baltic Sea, doing filming for a major news agency. So it's been... Um, a long week, but a very productive week, and plenty of uh, interviews in the can to bring you here on the Irish and Sweden podcast over the next week or two. Next week, you'll be hearing from Paddy Kelly, who wrote the book We Can Swedish, and I'll be telling you about an event here in Stockholm that you can attend for free. You can go along, it'll be on the Dubliner, uh, on the Dubliner south side on the 18th of May. But this week, there's a bit of a dramatic touch to things, because just before that happens, uh, the Spuds and Seal Amateur Drama Group, again here in Stockholm, are staging a play. So to start off with this week, I have spoken to Aidan from Spuds and Seal about the production that they're just about to put on and this is what he had to tell me about the couple of nights that are coming up in the Olympia Theatre here in central Stockholm in the very near future. Could I just start by asking you maybe about your own involvement in Spuds and Sill, the theatre group? How did they manage to drag you onto the boards here in Stockholm? Yeah, so it was a couple of years back. I think it was back in 2018 and I was in the old dub with some of my Swedish colleagues and uh, happened to sit down beside uh, Theresa Ogensod. Never met her before. And uh, she leaned over and she was like, you're Irish, aren't you? And I was like, I am indeed. And she was like, do you act? And I said, no, I've never really done that. She goes, well, you do now. You'll meet us next week for our, <laughs> our first meeting. And uh, it kind of went from there then, really. I didn't have a choice when Teresa gets you like that. You know? Yeah, well, you she, you, she'll back you into a corner and you just kind of feel like, you know, I think um, Owen Sheedy calls her one of the nannies, you know, and you kind of feel obliged to do, you know, whatever she asks exactly. you. But did you have any ambition in that way at all, Aiden? Did you ever look at no. that and go, I'd love to do this? Not really, not really. I mean, back when I was maybe very young, I dabbled a little bit in, in speech and drama, but I never really had the ambition to do it. Mm. And I kind of thought from a public speaking perspective, it could be good to practice and get up yeah. on stage in front of a lot of people. And uh, yeah. yeah. Is, is, it, is it something you do in your line of work? Do you make presentations as part of your work here in, in Stockholm? I actually do, yeah. So I, I would be kind of doing a lot of public speaking in my role. I work as an agile coach. So getting up in front of teams and people and kind of talking about our ways of working and kind of trying to inspire teams. So there would be a lot of that in it. So kind of it fed into that nicely. Mm. Have you found it's helped you since you started doing a bit of acting? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, I think for a lot of people, public speaking is a huge fear of theirs. Mm. And I think when you get on a stage and you have to recite lines and kind of pretend to be someone else, I think it's brilliant in that sense to kind of get you out of your comfort zone and become someone else and then actually publicly speak. Um, so I think, yeah, it's really good for that. Mm. Uh, of course, we've had a break due to COVID where nothing really happened for a couple of years there. But what was the first production that you took part in? Or have you taken part in any of the productions yet? Yeah, I have. I've been in two before this. So the first one that I was involved in was Big Maggie. And that was back in 2018. Mm. Um, it was a great crack. And then we did uh, um, The Romantic Lover. Uh, it was like a one-act play. And then, of course, COVID happened. And I think the society we were hoping to do a 10-year anniversary uh, mm. in 2020. Um, because the first ever play that they did was uh, Awake in the West. And for the 10-year anniversary, they wanted to do that again and put it on. But of course, COVID put a halt to mm. all of those plans. But we're back again this year. It's the first time that we've put on a play since COVID. So we're very excited. Um, yeah. Oh, so I suppose we'll start with that. The play is called Cupid War Skirts, and it's written by Sam Cree. Could you just tell us a little bit about what we can expect from the story if we buy our tickets? Yeah, it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a gas play to be honest. It's a bit cracked. Um, written by a guy called Sam McCree, and it's basically based in Belfast. And we, we kind of meet this antique dealer, Andrew Coulter, who's a recent widow, and he lives with his elderly father and his uh, teenage son Brian. Um, he's got a daughter as well, but she's married off. But she comes in every day 
to take care of the men and sh- ensure that they're coping. And I should probably preface this by saying that it was set in the 1960s. So you can imagine mm-hmm. the kind of roles that everybody plays mm-hmm. uh, in that kind of a, back in those days. But um, of course, Daphne becomes pregnant. And now she starts worrying about her dad and her brother and her grandfather and who's going to look after them um, and their ability to cope. Mm. Uh, and then, of course, Andrew has a sister-in-law um, and she, she basically is convinced that they will not be able to manage. And she makes a bet with him that he wouldn't be able to get a new wife within a fortnight. So the story kind of goes from there, how Andrew tries to find himself a new wife um, and everything that leads up to that. I can only imagine, you know, setting that in Belfast in the 1960s and all these details that you told us, I'd say it's pretty hilarious altogether. How many people are involved in the production? That's a good question. I think it's roughly around 10 of us. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, between the actors themselves, and we've got Theresa Hearn as the stage manager, and we've got Theresa Ogenstad being the team maker, kind of putting yeah. us up on our else so we can practice there. There's quite a few of us involved in it. And of course, we've got Ben on lights and sound as well. So it's a pretty big production, I would say. But of course, it's all volunteer, and we are all amateurs. Yeah. So none of us have really done this professionally, but uh, we're kind of just give it a lash, anyways, and try our best. Mm. And it's on on the 13th and 14th of May here at the Olympia Theater in, in, in Stockholm. And um, when you get the crew together, you know, what have the rehearsals been like? How do you go about choosing a, a play like Cupid War Scare? Is there murder behind the scenes before we get anywhere? No, I think it's kind of, we are always open to suggestions. I think that's kind of the one of the main things that this wasn't still really emphasizes that you can put on any play. I mean, if you write a play yourself, you're more than welcome to come and, and propose it to the, to the crew and put it on. I think it's a very, very open-minded. Um, I'm not exactly sure. I wasn't part of the process this year on how they chose the play, but Cooper Wars Curse is the one that was chosen. And um, it kind of, it's a case of, all right, we'll go with this play and then now we need to find actors to fill the, to fill the roles. Mm. So we've had a bit of a struggle trying to find people. Uh, some people come in, they say, yeah, we'll do it. And then maybe a week later, they realize they can't commit to it. But uh, this year, we, we've managed to fill all the roles, so that feels pretty good. Is there a lot of rehearsal time goes into it? Because, you know, and oftentimes you look at this and you mentioned the fact that everybody's amateurs, and I get that, you know. But then, you know, you realise, oh, hang on a second, this actually takes a little bit of time to do this properly. You know, there's a lot of preparation goes into it, right? Exactly, yeah. It's a quite a big commitment. I mean, we're practising twice a week for maybe three hours each session, and tomorrow we'll do a full day from like 10 to 6 when mm. we go through the play and go through all the directions that are, that are needed. But it is a quite a big commitment. And even the week leading up to, to the play, um, we'll be practicing every single night. We'll be doing dress rehearsals. We'll be doing tech rehearsals. Um, so it's, it's, it's all, all go, really. And it is a big commitment. But I think we all get something out of it. And it's great crack. I mean, I think because it's such a cracked play this year and it's really funny comedy, um, we can really get into the characters and just take the piss out of it, really. Uh, which has been really, really fun. I mean, other years we've done very, very serious plays and very dark plays, and that's kind of a different style and different vibe when you're when you're rehearsing. But because it's so fun this year, it's it's been a lot of crack just meeting up and rehearsing. What what role do you get yourself in this play? So I'm actually the son. I'm uh, Andrew Calder's son. My name is Brian, and I'm a uh, a young lad. Uh, where, and I think I'm I'm yeah I'm a bit naive and a bit foolish, but uh, yeah, I play the son of Andrew Calder. Yeah. And do you, in terms of getting into character, will you be giving us the full 1960s Belfast accent and the whole lot, yeah? I wish. No, I won't. I won't. I'll be keeping my Tick Mayo accent. For <laughs> I mean, we, have, we have a few Belfast accents in it and a few Nordies, but I think the vast majority of us will just do our, do our own Irish accents. Yeah. If, if you zoom out a little bit, Aidan, when you were growing up, uh, were, you know, you're saying you come from Mayo, obviously, you know, theatre in, in Ireland is not exactly confined to the main cities, but was there amateur drama in your area when you grew up? Yeah, it was quite huge, actually. Yeah. It was a big community. I mean, I think in the local hall, there was, there was plays on every couple of months, I think. Was it, there? Maybe it was just particular to Shrewd, where I come from. But it was a very, very big thing. Yeah. I mean, you know, you had uh, Scorn and Oak, and you had Board and Oak, and you have all these other competitions, and the Ray Dory. I think growing up, we were always part of that, mm. um, and putting on small productions. And, of course, you have the the uh, ones that travel around and put in productions in the different you know community halls around the, in the rural Ireland. Mm. So it was a big thing, I would say. And did you go and see many of those shows? Were they sort of part of what you did? Yeah, I think my, my mom was a huge, huge fan of uh, theatre. So she would always drag us along. Mm-hmm. And of course, we're cl- quite close to Galway City as well. And you've got a lot of, you know, uh, drama there as well in theatre. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Do you know of anybody else around the country here in Sweden? Has anybody said to you, oh, look, you should come up to Luleå and put a play on for us? Or is that sort of off the radar so far? Yeah, I, I don't think we've heard, but I mean, <laughs> we'd be willing to do it, I guess. Or maybe if they'd be willing to come down to Stockholm to see us. Oh, yeah. but it's not it's not really been a conversation, I would say. 
You mentioned there as well that some people have written plays. I know Niall Balf, I'm not sure if he's still involved anymore. I know he used to be very much involved in Spuds and Seal, and he's written a few plays over the years. Is there many playwrights in the group as well? Um, not that I've heard of, but uh, I know that my, Niall has written a few plays and we've actually put on a few of his plays. Um, but I, I don't really know. But again, if anybody is interested in playwriting, um, then get in touch with the society. I mean, they'd be only delighted to put on a production from somebody that has actually written a play. Mm. Um, I think it's they're they're a very open-minded society, I would say. Yeah. Of course, there, there is this thing about putting on plays as well, that the acting is only one part of it, right? So in terms mm. of uh, the scenes and stage dressing and technology and, you know, microphones and lights and all that, how much effort goes into putting on all that? Costumes? A huge, a huge effort, I would say. I mean, we've got Teresa Ahern working as their, like, I could, you could probably say stage manager, production manager. Um, and she has to find the list of props. There's so much props that are involved. You have to go through all the sounds. You know, when you read the script, there's so many different things happening in it that need to be organized. Um, yeah, so it, it's quite a big production. Of course, you've got all the organizational things as well, booking the theater, booking the practice slots for the theater as well. How, how, how hard was that, Aidan? Because like, I just, if I compare it to sport, I've done a lot in sport here in terms of, you know, booking pitches for the soccer team and the Gales and, and this kind of thing. Like, was it very hard to find a venue for it? Because I know we've had plays in Sunby Bay before and, and various different places. I think this theatre that we're doing it at, um, the Olympia Theatre, and we've actually put on a few productions there before. So I think we kind of had a foot in, a foot halfway in the door there. So it was easier, I would say, mm. for us to uh, to get in there. But I think it depends, like really, on when we want to put on a production and if we book it in time. The classic story in Sweden, you know, <laughs> you need to be prepared. But I think yeah. if you do prepare in time, usually you can actually find a theatre. Mm. But again, it's just knowing when you want to put it on and if they have availability then. Is, is it a very expensive process and is there a very big financial risk that the society takes every time it decides to do a play? That's a good question, Phil. I, <laughs> I'm not really into the financials of it, but I, I assume there is a, a risk of it being, you know, if you don't sell enough tickets that you don't at least cover the cost of what it takes to put on the production. Mm. But I, I don't think we've ever been in a situation where we haven't sold all the tickets and I don't think we've ever met a loss. <laughs> I think we've managed to always break even, so... Super. And if people want to buy tickets, they can go to olympiateotan.se and there's a, like the whole blurb about the play there is there in English. And then there's a little thing down to the right-hand side. There's two dates. That's the 13th and the 14th of May. And you can click on Boca Billet, which is Boca Billet is book your ticket, right? And that will take you into their booking system. Um, Swedish Irish Society members is 150, 150 Swedish crowns, non-members 170, children and students 120, pensioners 170. Um, what's the plan after this, Aiden? Have the tickets been selling? I'd imagine they're probably flying out the door, I would hope, at this stage. But uh, is there any plans for the next show after this, or are you just trying to survive this one? I think mostly we're trying to survive this one. We actually only released the tickets yesterday. Yeah. So we're, we're kind of at the start of it. But yeah, we've been selling quite a few. But um, we, we aim to put on a production every single year. So this is for 2022, at least we're putting on this one. We haven't really thought that far ahead <laughs> yeah, when it comes to the next one. So we're going to try and try and get this through this one first, and then we'll, we'll worry about the next one. How, how many seats are there in the auditorium? Is it a very big theatre, is it? Um, it? I think what I heard was about 100. Now, it's a very eclectic <laughs> one because they don't have the regular kind of chairs that you would have in a regular theatre. They have couches, they have armchairs. It's a bit of a random mix of chairs, but I think there's 100 places within the theatre. I like the sound of that because I'm a fairly tall lad, right? And I find it very difficult to sit in these seats that are designed by small people. So you'll <laughs> definitely get me buying a couple of tickets there, you know? Um, I had one last question for you. Yeah, so that's that's the story with the tickets there. They're on sale now. Um, if people want to get involved in the society, what's the best way to go about finding you guys? I think the Facebook page is probably the best way. Just write a message to the Facebook, the Spuds and Sill Facebook page, um, and someone will take it from there. Yeah. So you can go into the Spuds and Sill Facebook page, like the page, ping them off a message if you're interested. You'll find all the links there. If you want to buy tickets, olympiateotern.se is where you go. I think the tickets are also on sale from the Facebook page, but that's the, the crux of everything. Um, Aidan, I want to wish you the best of luck with it. I will see you on the night of either the 13th or the 14th and break a leg, my friend. Brilliant. Thank you very much. This was a great day, not only in Dublin, but wherever Irishmen have made their home. There's to be a new Abbey Theatre, and to lay the foundation stone came President de Valera. He recalled that 58 years ago he played as an amateur on the Abbey stage, afterwards deciding to go in for politics. Founded by dramatist Lady Gregory and the poet Yeats at the turn of the century, the Irish Literary Theatre took over an old Mechanics Institute in 1904 and called it the Abbey Theatre. 
present were the poet's son, Michael Yates, his mother and sister. All the backstage part of the old abbey was destroyed by fire 12 years ago. It was quite a small building, seating just over 500, but its fame spread all over the world. The new abbey will seat a hundred more. The architect is Michael Scott. May it discover more actors like Barry Fitzgerald, more playwrights such as Shauna Casey. Millions wish well to the new abbey theatre. You go. I suppose I shouldn't have been surprised there uh, when you think of that history, that little slice of history you just heard about the Abbey Theatre there. Um, I shouldn't have been surprised when Aidan was talking about how popular it was, where he is from. Um, again, Spuds and Sale, you'll find them there. Olympia Theatern is where it's on, so if you Google that, you'll find your way to the tickets. Get down there and see it, and they usually are really, really excellent. I mean, to talk about amateur drama, yeah, yeah, they're not pros and everything else. They're really, really good, and they put their heart and soul into it, and it's usually a great night out. So get down there if you can and check that out. Remember, this is a listener-supported podcast. You can become a sponsor of the show, Patreon of the show, by going to patreon.com forward slash arrowman in Stockholm. Please do that, right? Please do that. There's been a bit of a fall off in the new signups. Great in the beginning, that kind of thing. One or two people cancelled. I understand. Things change. People can't afford it. But the whole purpose of this, the whole point of this, the whole concept of it is, I'll put everything out for free, right? It won't be behind a paywall. Right? That's not what this is about. It has to be accessible to everybody. But in order for me to be able to do that, then the people who can afford to throw in a few bob need to throw in a few bob. Martin at Veerstone Martin Hessian is a brilliant sponsor. He's there every month contributing to this podcast, and I'm delighted to have him on board as a sponsor. But you can always do it with a few more to help out. So you can do it via patreon.com forward slash arrowman in Stockholm for private individuals. If you have a business, if you have Irish people working over here, uh, if you're looking to attract Irish people, if you have something to sell to Irish people, Irish in Sweden podcast at gmail.com is where you want to head there. And I'm sure we can come to some sort of an arrangement. If you're a private individual who doesn't have Patreon or doesn't want to have Patreon, you can go to Swish uh, on your telephone if you have a Swedish bank account. 123-2424166. And if you can Swish a few bob to keep this thing going, I would be extremely grateful. Now, the theme of drama is going all the way through this week's podcast. And uh, this week's longer interview, if you like, is Joe O'Neill. Now, Joe was one of the O'Neill brothers from Kildare. Kev O'Neill was over here working as a brand ambassador for Jemison. And then all of a sudden, Cormac was here. And then Joe was here. And I think half the O'Neills in Kildare had been over here at some point. But like the Waterboy song, The Hole of the Moon, he came like a comet blazing his trail over here last summer. And he had a wonderful time uh, living over here. And he has since moved to London. Now, Joe is a really, really talented guy, right? He's a great writer, great comic actor, great actor. Uh, just a fantastic guy, real bundle of energy. But what really stuck out, and it was kind of ironic when you think what Kev was doing over here, trying to get the or the Swedish people to buy more whiskey in the form of Jemison. Joe has uh, given up alcohol, right? So he moved to London. And then he's been working over there in pubs and that. He'll tell you the whole story himself. And gave up alcohol at the end of January this year. And he's given it up for a whole year. And as many of you will know, I haven't drank for many years myself. I gave up alcohol when my second daughter, shortly after she was born, maybe a year after. Because, you know, it just wasn't for me anymore. And I'm always interested in talking to people about that experience of being Irish and not drinking. And the whole weird thing that can be around it, you know. So uh, I got on to Joe in London, who, by the way, is desperate to come back to Sweden. So if you're working in the arts and you need a writer or a director or a, a filmmaker or an actor, anything you need, get onto this lad and bring him back over here because you'll, you can tell from the interview that he absolutely loved it over here and he's dying to get back. But uh, this is Joe O'Neill and I'll follow up this with a little snippet from one of the films that Joe made just to give you an idea of what he's up to. But uh, here is Joe O'Neill talking about acting and alcohol and all points in between. <laughs> Joe, your stay here in Stockholm was as brief as it was beautiful. How did you come to be a resident of Sweden last summer? Um, just by absolute pure chance. And uh, thank you for that, Phil. Uh, I was living and working in uh, NACE Hospital. And if you haven't heard of NACE or NACE Hospital, then by God, are you lucky. Living, um, living and working in a hospital. That's Okay, well... I will say the majority of my time I did not live there, but I was spending a majority of my days in said hospital. And um, and it was, whatever, I was six and a half years there. And my brother, Kev, who you know, Phil, as well, a lot of uh, listeners would know as well, uh, was 
living in Sweden for the living in Stockholm for the pre- previous two years, uh, working with the Jameson graduate program. Mm-hmm. And um, my other brother Cormac was going over, and I was thinking, I was like, uh, they they said he like my mom or whatever told me that he was heading over, and I was like, oh, I'd love to go over, but I, I probably won't. Like I because like I I was just thinking I'm too old to be mm-hmm. going over and just for having the crack. And then um, my sister rang me and was just like, Cormac, why don't you just go? And I was like, yeah, we'll go. So I got into Kev and um, and I went. And I, that was like, I think late March, I made that arrangement. Then I moved over, quit my job the 2nd of June and moved over the 3rd of June. Was there till the 21st of September or the 18th of September. And then I moved to London the 21st. It was amazing because when you arrived over, like you say, I mean, there's so many O'Neills, it's unbelievable. You mentioned <laughs> brothers is already in this conversation, right? But you arrived over and you just, you fit in right away, Joe. I don't know what it was like, you know, but everybody took to you, you took to the place. And after a week, it was like, you know, this guy has been here for 20 years. Did you feel the same way? Did yeah. you feel sort of a bond with the place? Yeah, I absolutely adored it. And I still do. And uh, like, if I wasn't in the arts industry, well, I'm actually a bartender mainly, but if I wasn't- Like everybody else uh, in the arts like industry. Like everyone else, like everyone else. <laughs> Um, but if I, I say to everyone and especially Irish people looking for a place to go, I tell them to go to Stockholm. There was never a place that I felt more welcomed and more at home just immediately than I did. And it obviously does help that I had Kev there who had roots put in for two years, but like it did not take me long to like branch out myself and just get talking to people and just you know, having uh, just have the best summer I've ever had in my entire life. And my, I had a one way ticket. I didn't plan to leave. And if things could have worked out better, I would have gladly stayed longer. I would have loved to have at least done a year there, mm-hmm. if not longer. And then, you know, get um, Stockholm Gales promoted legitimately. And um, yeah, and get us, get us, you know, where we should be, the top of the Swedish divisions. For, for the record, we have to point out that both yourself and Kev were very much involved. Kev was one of the instigators of the yeah. Stockholm Gales soccer team. He came to me and said, I want to start the soccer team. I went, right, go ahead, go do it. But don't ever ask me for anything ever again, right? And he went, yeah, okay. And he went and he found sponsors and he got the team into it, the, the corporate leagues. Like I think he did a brilliant job. Then you came along and took up alongside him. And yeah. now the team is playing in Division 7. We won't mention the results so far. They haven't been great, <laughs> but they, they are improving. What was it that made Stockholm so much more preferable to Nace Hospital to you, Joe? Um, have you ever seen the women? Um, In Nace Hospital, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, they're they're what you can imagine they'd be. No, it just Stockholm. There was look. I can't say going over to Stockholm was a dream I had. You know, I'd love to move and live live in Stockholm. I um I'd spend a long week in there weekend um in Stockholm. Uh, I think it was January before COVID hit. And I thought I just thought it was a real cool sort of mystic place, and it was like it was January, so it was nighttime the whole time I was there. Mm-hmm. Um, aside from when Kev brought us down, I can't think of the name. It was like the lakes that you go to, uh, like that are basically black, mm-hmm. you know, like especially during winter, and you you put your head in there for like five seconds, um, to wake yourself up and get yourself over any hangover, and myself. Kev, my cousin Jack, were there, and Cormac travelled over with us for the long weekend, and we were all sort of like dipping our toe in, going like, "Oh yeah, oh, I don't know, I don't, it's a bit cold, isn't it?" And Cormac like thought he was, I don't know, fucking God's gift at this moment, and just jumped in, <laughs> and and I never forget his face bobbing back up, bright red, gasping for air, and. Just, ah! And myself and Jack were pacing ourselves off, and, and Kev luckily had a, a bit of a head together, so he put his hand in, and I think saved Cormac's life. Um, <laughs> this is what you get for binge watching Vikings during the winter, you know. <laughs> but but with that, with that, like we had a great weekend that time when we came over, and then um, I just I just I'll head over again, and then when I was there, it was just everything about that, everything about the city and everything about the Swedish people. It was just such a cool, laid back um, atmosphere amongst, the, amongst the, the people, amongst the residents. And then also a thing that I think Irish people will connect with it as well is that the Swedes love to be entertained and hate to entertain. <laughs> so like we have the crack and they're like, what is happening here? Like it, it is something that, especially for me, who doesn't mind being the center of attention is infectious. So if you're good at that, if you can play two or three songs on guitar, like you'll get yourself a woman in no time. 
<laughs> it's that simple. This is the equation. Get guitar, yeah. get ribbon. That's it. You know, you yeah, be the that's first, it. That's it. Yeah, you wouldn't be the first Irish one to come over here with that in mind. You mentioned there, Joe, that you work in the arts and you're probably best known to non-listeners of this podcast as an actor, as a comedian, as a writer, as a maker of very funny short films. Um, what opportunities were there or were there not for you to sort of, you know, to stay in Stockholm and do those kind of things? Um from what I got, and I, I did put in a, a bit of work and a bit of research, and I, I spoke with Martin Maloney a good bit about this of Hardy Books fame, and um, there is opportunities, but they're just a lot smaller. So, like, I was told by a lot of people that, like, yes, absolutely, you can put on theatre over here, um, and English-speaking theatre, Swedes would love to come see English-speaking theatre, but it felt more like it would have been more of a novelty rather than a career. It felt like I, I don't think I could have just solely lived off that unless I was putting in a serious amount of groundwork from, from that would have taken me two or three years of even longer to build up something like that. So I kind of felt like, and, and other than that would be to learn Swedish. And then even at that, there's no guarantees. So the way I looked at it was, it was best to move to London, even though I never thought in my life I'd ever live in London, but best to move in London and um, bring stuff back over, which mm -hmm. is my plan, hopefully to do it one day. And I've, I've spoken to you briefly about this film. And I hope to do it sometime if not this year the next year is to bring shows over but i think that is unfortunately the way it would have to be because just it's just better to be scandinavian um as an actor as a writer or as anything like that well maybe solely a writer you could do something like but as an actor definitely it feels like you're just better off being scandinavian but in saying that there's always going to be opportunities and if i stayed longer i'm sure i would have found them but i've kind of a few other things came my way and I've, it was just best for me to to move to the UK. But like I will say until my dying breath that if I can spend a couple of months out of my year, if not the whole time in, in Stockholm, in Scandinavia, in, in Sweden, I will gladly do it. Mm. You strike, I mean, definitely from what you said there, you're, you're not done with Sweden. And I don't think Sweden is done with you either, Joe. When you did move to London, did you miss Sweden in any way? We, we, we over there, sort of, you know, in, in Kilbourne, got, fuck it, I wish I was back there with Kevin. Oh, uh, like immediately. Like the thing is, when I when I moved over, okay, um, the first thing you get on is the tube. And the T-Banna in Stockholm is this beautiful, almost futuristic. It has got Wi-Fi. It's got like clean air. It's got, every, you got your own space. There's no one yelling. There's just, there's just a wonderful aura around it. And then you get on the tube and it feels like you're being coughed on by someone who's had 60 cigarettes a day for 50 years and they're coughing directly into your face. That's what the difference feels like um, between the T-Banna and, and the tube. And just in London, okay, and London is a great city, but it's just a lot all the time, mm. you know? And I think there, there is such a close relation to Ireland as well, which you, where you kind of feel like you're at home, which you're not at home. But while in Stockholm, you, there's like, there is a good group, which I didn't realize until I got over there, but there is a good heritage of Irish people there. But it it's a bit more sparse. So like when you meet friends or when you meet people like you kind of feel like you've got a connection there for life but with london you just feel like you feel like you can be a bit of a spare part sometimes mm -hmm. so sweden in kind of every possible way we we'll say like uh, maybe the nightlife and stuff like that is london has a bit more going on but like in in stockholm just the whole feeling and the whole air about it is is for me better and if i could live in one of the two places. Like if I had to say, you have to either live in London for the rest of your life or you have to live in Stockholm. And I, I pick Stockholm immediately, like every day of the week. Do you feel that you have to play the role of an Irishman when you're living in London? Do you feel that people, you know, when you tell them what your name is, when you tell them where you're from, the kind of jobs you're looking for, do you feel, ah, fuck it, now I have to take on this mantle as well? Well, when, <laughs> when I'm in the bar, for sure, when there's Americans about, because I want to get tips. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but there is a bit of that. Yeah, that's a good question, actually. There is there is a sense of, like, like, of course, there is a massive history with being Irish here and with the Irish, as every, I'm sure everyone's uncle would claim that they built London, um, mm -hmm. that there is a certain part that you have to play and there's a certain thing expected of you uh, when you're Irish in London. You tend to take that on even if you don't mean to. And, of course, you get everyone coming up to you. And this is a thing I hate more than anything. It's when people say, oh, you're from Ireland, uh, what part? And then I look at them 
And I'm like, there's either two things going on. They're either haven't got a notion about anything about Ireland um, or they are related to someone who's, who's or they're Irish themselves. So I kind of look at them and I go about 40 minutes from Dublin and they're like, oh, so that's South Ireland. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. That, that's the end of this conversation. And then the other one is just like, oh, no, my, my mom's from Mayo and my dad's from Sligo, so I know where you're from. And I go, oh, Kildare. And they're like, I never heard of that. I go, oh, <laughs> You have mind. to drive through it to get the MS place, but I love it, God. <laughs> oh, whatever. Okay, whatever. <laughs> uh, but there is, there is a certain sense that of, of playing the part of the Irish person, but I'm trying to avoid that. I'm trying to make... I'm trying to be proud, like be proud of being Irish without having to be any sort of stereotype. Um, maybe that's why I gave up drink as well. But um, I have set up networking nights in in because there is a massive amount of Irish in London that is just not being utilized, I don't believe. So I've set up a network, a creative networking night. We had it last month in Madden's pub in East Finchley. And then we're having the next one, the 31st of May in um, in the Oxford Arms pub in Camden. And there'll be live music. And that same night, I have readings of my new play amongst other plays as well. So um there will be a lot going on but it's there's, like I said the one kind of downfall maybe it's a good thing as well it's just there's so much in London all the time there's very little chance to breathe so you just have to kind of ride that wave but it's definitely good to get out of here every so often and I'm hoping to get back to Sweden at least once mm. for the years out and hoping hoping that can be over the summer because that is the best time to come visit oh lord but, uh, yeah that's beautiful so I'm, that's what I'm aiming for but uh but yeah, definitely interesting over here. Yeah. Um, one of the, I mean, the main reason I wanted to talk to you, Joe, was because of this thing. I knew that you'd basically given up alcohol pretty much as you moved. Was it the 1st of January kind of thing, was it? Uh, no, the 28th of January. I gave up the the day after my birthday. The day after your birthday, you knocked it on the head. Uh, what was behind that decision? Because now, as we're talking, it's kind of 100 days we've gone since yeah. then, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. just uh, at the time of speaking, we're at 98 days now, um, 100 days on will be Sunday, I think then. Yeah. So I, I think there was a plethora of reasons. Um, there was one which was, I was working in a pub in East Finchley, uh, which is North London. And I was six days a week working in that bar. And it was good points as well, but it was pretty much not great across the whole thing. But it was one of those regulars pubs that every single person here will know. It was the place that had racing TV on. Um, you had people coming in from the moment we opened until maybe seven or eight o'clock and all they'd be doing there, there'd be people like, oh, their retirement age or close to retirement age. And they'd just be sitting there having a pint of caroling, watching racing TV, and they'd just be miserable. They might not even know they're miserable, but they're miserable. Hmm. And I was kind of looking out and like a lot of Irish families and a lot of English families, and actually I think a lot of Swedish families too, there is a lot of... Um, alcoholism that run in families um a lot of dependency on drink and i was kind of looking at this going i don't think i do because i've gone off drink for a couple of months at a time before but i need to prove to myself that i will not become like these people that i will there will always be a purpose in my life and to just make sure i can do that i have to make sure i can go a year without alcohol mm. and um and there was as well as that as I felt that there could have been a dependency coming because of working in the pub I was working in. They weren't giving me tips. What they do is they say, um, oh, if someone, because no one in England like throws you fiver, they always go, I'll buy you a pint. Mm. And the thing is, I didn't always want a pint. So I was like, I'll just take the tip. And they were like, no, you can't take the tip. You have to take the pint. And I was like, right. So after work every night, I was having like two or three pints of Guinness, whether I wanted to or not. And uh, until I just decided to take the money instead, because, you know, fuck them. And um, <laughs> and it became this thing where I was just every single night and you were you were ended up just having two or three pints. And I was like, I don't want that. I need to. And I I don't want to ever have to have that in my life where no matter what I finish with a drink, because although I do see myself eventually professionally working in the career um, in some capacity, um, I will probably be doing bar work for the next while. So I need to not have that to be my focus. And to be honest, it's actually, I think people say to me, oh, I can't believe you don't drink and you work in a bar. It's actually easier mm. because if I was working, even if I was still just in the hospital, nine to five-ish job or whatever it was, eight to half, six, what I do when I finish, I text a mate of mine, let's go have, watch football, have a pint. 
but like when you're when you're social when your social hours are work hours you, you don't drink do you know what i mean you, you usually if before you'd finish a shift and have a pint it's like it's the easiest thing in the world to say no i won't have a pint now and also when you're looking out and just seeing like a bunch of idiots making fools out of themselves it kind of makes you go do you know i think i'm doing the right thing <laughs> by not drinking you know um so like that aspect of it has been a lot has actually been easier than i expected the real issue and like of course i do have days off so there is and i still spend i live in angel and anyone who lives in angel knows that it's a very great place to live if you for nightlife um for the social scene um so that that's an issue i have as well because i still love the crack do you know what I mean? I absolutely love going out and that hasn't changed whatsoever. It hasn't deterred me whatsoever. It just means I think because I don't drink, I probably don't stay out as late as I usually would. Although I do kind of have a stubbornness that makes me want to stay out mm. till 5 a.m. Even if I'm like, oh, this is shite. I feel like, no, power through, Joe. You're just as much crack as you were when you were drinking. Like, <laughs> just keep going, keep going. Um, but there is that aspect of it where where it mightn't be in every culture, but it certainly is in Irish and British and I think Scandinavian too, is where it's, let's have a drink. Let's meet up and have a drink. And when you're like, I don't drink, but I'll still meet up in the pub, it kind of leaves you to be a little bit. Um, I knew, I know my one of my dad's best mates, John Dooley, he's never had a drink in his life. And I asked him before, like, has it ever been an issue? And he said, and he's a prison officer. And he said, for years, people wouldn't trust them. Hmm because they wouldn't know what they say when they have a few drinks in them and they know you're listening. So I think there's like, there's always a little aspect of that as well in the back of my mind, whether it's true or not, that people don't invite you to come out because you're not drinking. But are people suspicious of you now, Joe? You know, people you would have gone out with before on the 27th of January and got wrecked for your birthday kind of thing. And yeah. now all of a sudden they go, hang on, I don't really know about Joe hanging around there when I'm outside a kebab shop. <laughs> well i i don't really know because i'm living in a new life in london so like i don't have the friend group i had before and mm. when i i've been home a couple of times and there's i don't think i've really had the opportunity even to go out i've mostly been going out in the day because i've had to go home or for whatever reason i'm back for so it hasn't really been an issue and and my mates that i do have in london they kind of mess with me like let's go to the cinema let's let's hang out we don't have to um we don't have to go to a pub. And I'm like, look, man, I do, I want to go to a pub. If there's a match on, I want to go to a pub and just have, uh, I'll have some water. I've never been so high, well, so hydrated in my life. Like, um, <laughs> Fucking soaking the whole time. I, <laughs> I am sweating. Uh, but there's never really, I can say amongst the mates I have here, they've all, for the most part, have been really supportive. It's kind of the random Egypt to me. I remember actually, you know, this is an aspect I didn't expect either, right? I remember... <laughs> I was going to Rones, which is a night bowling alley, you know, a late night bowling alley. That's like a, a fucking great idea, isn't it? Oh, no, Phil, it's actually unbelievable. All right. It's a bowling alley. It's a, it's a disco. It's an arcade. It's like everything when you were seven, except you're now older and can really appreciate, it, you know. <laughs> and I was meeting a couple of mates of mine in there and um, I was waiting in the queue and there were two English girls. I was chatting with them and... Uh, we were there for like 20 minutes and we went in and your one goes to me, can I get you a drink? And I was like, I said, actually, I don't drink. And she goes, why are you an alcoholic? And I was like, no, 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 I don't. I just, I just don't drink. And she's like, why? <laughs> I was like, hmm. all right, well, no, I, I gave up. I'm actually doing it for charity. And she was like, what charity? She said, share a dream. And she's like, look, don't get the kids involved in your lie. I'm like, no, it's not a lie. Like I, I'm actually, I don't drink, do you know, I'm doing it for charity. She's like, okay, show me the charity. I was like, well, I don't have the link set up yet. And she's like, all right, well, yeah. And then she just walked away. So like there, there was, there is aspects of that of people looking at you when you say you don't drink being like, what, what, what you do wrong? Like yeah. it's so alien to people that not drinking that they, they tend to think that there's something wrong with you. If you Wait, I think it's the fact that you would choose to do it, Joe, because most yeah. people go, yeah, well, I could, if I want to, I just don't want to, you know? So I'm just going to continue living the life that I do without that. When you say no, consciously, I'm not doing this, you know, for the next year. And then all of a sudden, but somehow you're the bad guy and people yeah. get sort of aggressive about it, you know, like, like, I, that yeah, there is, there has been a few people who are like call you out in a little bit of it, but like it, it tends to not be made to tend to be just people like a chatting to. Hmm. And I think it's because of their own insecurity. Cause a lot of that is them saying like, I couldn't do that. Do you know what I mean? And I'm like, it's just a year. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, you'd be surprised how easy it is not to fucking do something as well. Yeah. You know? And also the amount, you save a lot of money. 
You know, there is a lot of benefit, and you feel uh, better. I, I was I was saving up that question, right? The millions that you have saved, and the hours and minutes and seconds that you have back in your life now because of not, you know, with your nose in a burger bag somewhere <laughs> on a Monday morning. What are you doing with all these newfound millions, Joe? I'm wasting it in so many different ways. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm now addicted to gambling. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, you know I me, mean? I, I just walk the streets and just throw money out to the peasants. Yeah, of you're very generous, man. Lovely I'm man. very, very generous, man. Very generous, man. No, but uh, it's, yeah, there, there is like this whole thing. Like I really am feeling the benefit. I think it took about three weeks for me to really start feeling the benefits of it. Hmm. And like, and people say to me, like, like you're going for a year, but you think you'll ever go back? And people also say, like, you won't do it. And I'm like, I will do it. Trust me. My mm. mom was the first person. My mom and my auntie Geraldine were the first. I told everyone on my birthday. I was, I think I told them a couple of days beforehand, but I kind of confirmed that on my birthday in my house that I'm I'm giving up for a year. And they all laughed. They all laughed at me, Phil. They that all bastards. laughed, all right? Except for my auntie Geraldine, who gave me the first 50 euro towards the donation. I mean, ma'am, he said, he'll do it. He'll do it. And I will do it. But um, I told them all. And my dad said, if you, Joe, if you fail to do it, um, you have to match whatever you've raised so far. Or he said, no, add two grand to whatever you've raised so far, you have to do it. And I was like, all right. But when I do do it, you all have to give me 100 euro towards. And they kind of went, <laughs> it's like, yeah, see, the fear is coming into you now. But it's, uh, and also another thing, I remember uh, there is no plan B for Irish people when it comes to this sort of thing as well. When I was leaving my old job, um i was i you know i was there six days a week for five months i felt like i was there 50 years it was like the opposite of like how how good i felt in stockholm it was like the opposite when i was leaving there you know and um the a lot of like the barflies went, oh i'll get you a drink for when you're going and i was like oh i'm actually i don't i don't drink and i you could see like do not compute you know does not compute coming across the yeah. head they're like i, I, I hear the words he's saying but they just don't make any sense <laughs> is he saying chinese is he <laughs> <laughs> just like they don't and then they were like they just went oh and instead of being like here i'll just try, i'll just give you a fiver they're like i don't know what to do now there was just a, a look and a feeling of confusion they're like an irish person doesn't drink like i don't know how else to say goodbye so they just walk away and uh yeah they just they wouldn't do anything for me but it was uh but it really has been a great decision i made and the only sort of and like the not drinking has not been an issue for me um which i'm happy about like um, I've been like I've been the pubs. I work in a pub, as I said, and I, whenever I tend to go out, I end up in a pub. Whether it be if I'm going to a show, I'd end up in a pub afterwards or before. Um, if I'm on a date, I'd bring I go to a pub and I just be like I don't drink. Um, and it, it's not the not been an issue. Can now, I ask only, you, Joe, yeah. if you go if you go out with a girl, now pardon me because I'm 50 years old and I don't know shit about women, right? I don't know how I got this far in my life. But if you sit down with a girl and you say to her, I don't drink. Is that in in this day and age? Is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Do they look at you and do they give you that aggressive thing? Go, why are you an alcoholic? Or do they go, oh, I'm fucking delighted. Finally, so I'm a bloke who actually doesn't fucking spend his time inside a glass. Well, the, look, the Rowan bowling alley girl experience was was one extreme, but it tends to be like um around the middle. You know, it tends to be like this bit of oh, that's. Okay. Um. That's uh, fair enough. That's not. It's problem. a bit lukewarm, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit like okay. Yeah. Like now. Also, an issue is like I. I'm a bar barman. I'm five days a week or six days a week, depending in in Philomena's bar in Holborn, which is a terrific Irish bar. Uh, you'd love a Phil, even though it has no Irish music, which pisses me off. But anyway, um, they. I. What tends to happen is if I'm working. I get chatting with a girl, flirting with her. And then at the end of the night, they'd be like, we're going on somewhere else. Do you want to come with us? And I'd be like, sure. Um, but you're quite drunk. She's like, yeah, I know you've been serving me. It's like, the thing is, I don't drink. So I don't think it's a good, a good idea to go on somewhere else. And, you know, there could be a thing to arrange to meet up later, but it doesn't really tend to happen because a lot of them would just be there for a short amount of time. Um, and, um, <laughs> you know I mean? you're being so diplomatic here joe it's unbelievable <laughs> keep going <laughs> so like that but that that's kind of that's an issue which i didn't foresee mm. and if i wasn't doing this for charity i would have given up this like the first time this i like if someone said like you know if a girl's like all right well i'm drunk and you're sober get drunk and then it'll be fine i would have been like yeah grand but because i'm doing it for the charity i'm like no 
I can't. Do you know what I mean? That I did it for the case to keep me on the straight and narrow, to keep it as as because you know I think a problem I have as well is impulse control. I I don't always listen to what the best thing is in my head, but if I have something I'm fighting for or doing it for, I'll be like, no, that's the most important thing. I have to keep going. So like I feel like I would have, I would have faltered if it wasn't for that. Joe. It sounds to me like the charity thing is kind of a shield, right? You're kind of hiding behind this a little bit. Does it ever feel to you the same way? You go, well, I'm doing it for charity. I have no choice. I have to be a nice bloke. <laughs> it is. It, if, if, I think the charity thing, It. I did it because I knew, I, I didn't know if I'd be able to trust myself for the whole year. I knew if I said, like, I would have been convinced out of it. You know, if if like, because I, for example, all right, there's a there's a pub around the corner for me, uh, Slim Jim's an Angel. If anyone is from or lives in this area, will know it. It's a great rock bar, great jukebox, great place. And uh, I'd go in there and I'd have a sometimes after work or if I finish early, or whatever, because it's a late bar. I'd have a couple of cokes or some water, or whatever. And uh, I was at the bar, and um, there was two um, guys. I think it was one of the lads' birthdays, and they got shots. And um, your man. And they did the shots, but the bartender had like tiny bit of whatever it was left in the bottle. So he just turned to me and said, here, have this, go on. And I was like, no, man, I'm fine, I'm fine. Um, and he's like, no, go on, go on, have it, have it, seriously, it's going to go to waste. And I was like, look, I don't drink. And he was like, ah, oh, look, come on, it's barely anything. Look, it's only a tiny bit, just do it. And I was like, no, I'm actually, I don't drink and I'm doing it for charity. And they were like, no problem. Sorry about that. That's grand, that's grand. So as well as that, it gets people off your back. Mm. You know, because I feel like part of me is like, would I be able to go to full hog? Uh, without it, I'm not sure. I feel like I I could have faltered by having less willpower, especially if it comes to women. But when it comes to people trying to pressure, pressure into it, like just have a pint with you for the love of God, have a pint. Yeah. I can go, no, I don't. This is the biggest issue for me, Joe, is that you saying I don't want to, is not enough for people. And that's why, you, you know, you kind of, the, the charity thing is, you know, when I say it's a shield, I don't mean that in a negative way, you know. Yeah. It's just, it's something that, you know, when, when they get into that discussion, I always say to people that I gave up when my kids were young because you can either have children or hangovers. You can't have both at the same time if you're me, right? Yeah. But at the same time, that was my explanation for, right, this is why I'm not doing this, you know. And there are millions of other reasons I don't drink anymore. You know, one of them is I wasn't a nice person when I was drinking. I felt I was drinking too much and I didn't want to be that person anymore, you know. Yeah. But there always has to be that little bit extra you know oh i don't drink why not oh, i have cancer you know and yeah, so yeah. nobody's going to question that but oh i don't drink why not well i don't want to you, you don't yeah. want to Do you know that leads to a fucking inquisition you know yeah um but in those sort of social situations now joe do you find yourself doing different things because you mentioned there that you know i know that you're afflicted with a love of manchester united you still like to go to, to pubs to watch matches uh, do you find yourself doing different things though you mentioned going to the cinema with friends that you've made in yeah London. yeah no that, that it's it's a whole different outlook i have to try to do um because i never realized i, I messaged a mate of mine uh yasmin she's um she's just newly qualified counselor at least I think that's what she is. She might be screaming into her iPod now because I mixed up her job title. But as far as I know, yes, that's what you do. So I contacted her and I was like, and because she's messaging me every so often seeing I'm getting on. And I'm like, it's not the drinking, it's the social aspect. Because in loads of other countries, if you don't drink, that's relatively normal. But in Ireland or the UK, if you're trying to be healthy, you might as well you know, be a psychopath. So like, I go to the cinema, I try to go to museums, I try to just message people. Uh, I tend to like if I'm going to a bar like I, I was with someone last week and we met up and we went to Flight Club, which is a, like a darts place. So it's like there's an activity there where you're like the fact you're not drinking is even though there's a bar, it's kind of masked because there's stuff happening. So like I try to like go on walks with people. I try to do as many different things as possible. And the great thing is people message me like good friends of mine and say, let's meet up, but let's do this. Do you know what I mean? Let's whatever it could be. But it tends to be more um i like the same way i like spending time in a pub especially having man united make me miserable um in a, in a pub is the best place to do it but when i'm meeting up with people it tends to be anything else but unfortunately working living in london it's hard to have fine find time to do anything so uh, i haven't yet found out if i'm like great at archery or you know at knife throwing uh, they have yet to come into those paths yet, but but when they do, tomahawk, that's it, tomahawk trying. But once once I do, Phil, once that once that comes down the line and I find out that scale, I'll thank not drinking 
um, for that. There'll be no going back. Joe, yeah. how, how has it affected the work you do as an artist? How has it affected your acting, your writing? And how has, that, has it affected your ambitions for the things you want to do? It's honestly, I, I'm, it's given me a lot more clarity. Um, I Over the last while, I've kind of realized where it's letting, where I'm letting myself down and what I need to work on, which I don't think I would have done if I was um, drinking because you get that false sense of security hmm. when you're like, I do, I do miss like, go like there's been like maybe two or three occasions where I'd like, I'd love to have a pint now. And that's only tends to be when I'm with one-on-one with someone. And I don't know if that's a socially awkward thing as well. Maybe that it just makes it a bit easier, but it tends to be that like they're drinking. I'm not we're watching football. And that's my favorite time to be when I was having a pint was when there's six matches on and you're like, yes. Um, but Aside from that, it's been grand. And but for work wise, for for everything I want to do, it it has made me it's been tough in a good way because it's made me realize that I need to like I can write dialogue. I'm very happy with how I write dialogue and I, I, I know what I want to do. But structure wise, when it comes to like long form, whether it be films or theater, it's that's where I kind of let myself down. And I've always had maybe. This is what I was saying about, sorry, about uh, when your false sense of security comes from drinking, is that when you're drinking, when you're drunk, a lot of times you think, oh, I'm the best, all right? Or else you have people around you like, yeah, I can do this on grand. Then the hangover, you might feel shit about the way life is, but you're kind of blaming it on the hangover. And then you like rinse and repeat. But with this, you just have your own mind and you have your own clarity nonstop. So like I messaged um, a, a great, um, a lot of, I hope a lot of Irish people know him, Jerry Lee. He's a, a great director, actor, writer. He um he played in the very first episode of Father Ted. He played the guy that came over to interview Ted, you know, Spider Baby. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he plays him. And I messaged him yesterday and I was like, look, Jerry, he met up with me ages ago. He saw a play I wrote, Bright Eyes, which ran in Smock Alley for a couple of weeks. And uh he get and then I sent him my new play, which I'm still working on, and he gave me some great advice. But he just told me um that I need to learn how to need to learn structure and I was like okay grand and uh, I didn't because I was like oh I'll be fine I know what I'm doing mm. and then over the last while it's made me realize no I need to actually that's something I need to work on so I contacted him yesterday he sent me over books to buy and I plan on getting stuck into doing that properly and actually properly like because it's one thing think it like being oh no they're not taking on my stuff because I speak the truth you know, it's like, no, they're not picking up your stuff because they don't know what you're trying to say. Mm. You know, no matter what you, what way you, it is in your head, the world is built in a structure. The arts are built in a structure. Playwriting, film writing, there is a structure to it. And it's only, it's embarrassing. I have a, I have a film podcast myself, which I'm bringing back soon enough. And it's only recently that I've, embarrassing recently, that it's like, I understand what structure is. I still don't know how to do it, but I understand what structure is. Mm. So my next thing I'm, I'm getting from this getting these books learning structure and getting better at the craft that i claim to be my number one thing and as well as that i've been able to work with great um performers over here great writers sean burke who a lot of people know he's a terrific irish comedian uh, based in london for the last five or six years i've been working with him a little bit like just being in his stuff and helping him film his stuff and um basically and i'm and i'm healthier so like basically the what not drinking has done has given has opened my mind and allowed me to realize what I need to work on, what I need to get better on, and also allowed me to have the motivation to do it. A lot of the films and stuff that you've put up, the short films, and some of them are extremely funny that you've put out on YouTube, are to do with men, men's emotions, yeah. uh, the way we handle things, the the sort the social rules that we play by that you know sometimes confound and irritate women in equal measure. Do you find it easier now as somebody who doesn't drink or hasn't been drinking for the last 90 odd days to 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 be in touch with those things? Because you did these things before when you were drinking as well. Yeah. Uh I think. I, I've always been fairly in touch with my emotions, whether I wanted to or not. And um, I think the more people I open up to and get close to, the more I find out about myself. And the more I find out about, again, the stuff that I don't like about myself and the stuff I like about myself and also the stuff I don't like about people in general. Because I, like you're saying about, I think the toxic masculinity one, mainly you're speaking about there, I wrote that because I think toxic masculinity affects men more than it affects women. I think that we're 
we grew up in a world of toxic masculinity. And I think that word triggers people, toxic masculinity or that phrase triggers people, but that's because they don't, lads don't properly know how to talk about it. don't know how to deal with their emotions still, which is awful. Mm-hmm. But I think in, with not drinking, I, I think, and how, like I said, even mentioned before about having that clarity, it does make the world realer. You know, you don't have anything to mask. You don't have any, I have like, I have no vices at the moment. I have nothing but the world to exist in. You don't, um, don't take drugs. Don't gamble. No, not cool enough at all. That's yeah. Fucking hell. Why'd I get you one at all? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm the least, I, I, I'm the least Irish person. Uh, you I could possibly imagine. I don't, I don't have anything. Uh, I don't mm. even drink tea or coffee. And um, so like the only world I have to live in is the world that I create myself. And um, is that a difficult world to live in, Joe? Because that sense of clarity that you're talking about, it's not always fucking easy to look in the mirror and see who we are and who we thought we were and all the shortcomings that we have, right? Um, to be honest, from what it was, I can't say, I li- look, life isn't easy. You just look for any moment to give you serotonin and that's it. But it has, I've, I've been sleeping better eating better, feeling better. And if you've got those things down, you're going to, things are going to get easier for you. Mm-hmm. So like, although there are times when I'm like looking in the mirror going, what am I doing? There's also a voice that was in my head going, you're a piece of shit. Like you're not going to achieve anything. Why are you doing this? And I'm, I'm fighting against myself to make, try to get my dreams happen. Now the voice in my head is going, you've got this. Why are you being so hard on yourself? Believe in yourself. Just keep going. You're you're like you're in London. You're doing the right things. You're you're realizing because like there's all the thing like like I'm 32 years old. And I'm like now I'm only realizing what how you're supposed to write. Now I'm only living on my own property for the first time. But and I'm always and that would be a thing that I beat myself with. But now I'm like no, but like you're doing it. It doesn't matter when you're doing it. The fact is you're doing it, and you're doing you you do have a plan. Even if no one can understand that plan except for <laughs> except for me. <laughs> I still have a plan. And when I was drinking, the voice in my head was a dickhead. But now the voice in my head is my mom. Mm. And she's just like, you got this. Don't worry about it. Mm. It's fine. It's, it's interesting what you said there, because it took me years to get into journalism the way I wanted to, because I didn't really believe in myself. And I'm always reminded mm. of that story about the English footballer, Vinnie Jones, the hard man who played for Wimbledon. And he was booked after seven seconds in one game, you know, and he said to the ref, like for a late tackle. And yeah. then he said, ref, why'd you book me? He said, that was late. He said, well, I got there as fast as I could. And, you know, at 32 years of age, it doesn't matter what you did before. The fact is that you are where you are now. And I felt very much in the same way. Do you miss it, Joe? Do you miss alcohol at all? I think I miss the freedom that comes when you're three pints in from three pints till about seven pints when you're with your mates and the conversations flowing and you're just nothing else matters. Mm-hmm. When, when you don't, when you're not worrying about what you have to do tomorrow, when you're in that kind of flow, that's great. But I wasn't in that company for the last couple of months before I was drinking. I was in that company when I was in Sweden where I had great mates um, where I'd meet up with. And you're just like, this is like electric. When I went to London, I didn't have that. Um, I had a healthy relationship. Well, aside from maybe the last two weeks, I was in Stockholm because myself and Murph just went on, on the absolute rip um, consistently and constantly. I slept for about two hours. But aside from that, um, I... I wasn't having that in London. And if you're not enjoying anything, don't do it. And so I can't say I'm missing it. I will definitely be drinking again, but it will be after the year because I never did it to give up for the rest of my life. I just gave it to prove that I could do it and to do it for a good cause. I'm glad I'm doing it and I don't regret doing it whatsoever. I miss that tiny aspect of it, but I don't feel I would be doing that now anyway. January 28th, 2023, yeah. what pub are you going to walk into? What are you going to have to drink? And how do you expect that your body is going to react after a year of society? See, the thing is, I probably won't go in the 28th of January because I feel like that's a bit like... Just too portentous, isn't it? Yeah, just too like immediate. Like I probably have to wait a little while. Um, it'll be a pint of Guinness for definite. It'll be with me da. And I'd say it'll be in... Mm. See, Fletcher's historically is the best point of Guinness in Nice. 
Okay. One of the That's best not saying much, but go ahead. Okay. <laughs> Just one little dig. Uh, <laughs> but the last time I was in there with my dad, I think I was still drinking at that time, and they didn't give him a good Guinness. And he's, as he says, he's very, he's a very sensitive tongue for Guinness. Mm. So um, it mightn't be there, but it should be a nice somewhere. If not Fletcher, probably then I would say Lawler's or Hayden's Pub. But also, I have a million and one people who've told me that they wanted to buy me their first pint. So it could be a case of we have the biggest ever back on the back on the tear uh, session in London. So if that's happened, Phil, you make them over. And uh, there will be a live podcast that day from wherever yeah. it does happen. And you know what, Joe? I reckon it's going to last about fifteen minutes because you'll have about two points and you'll be asleep in the corner after. That. Also, if you ever get Kev on this podcast, ask him about the time the last time I gave up drink. And uh, we went to Paris for Euro 2016 because if it was if it was anything like that, I don't think I'll survive. Okay, were you not drinking in Paris at Euro 2016? Because if so, you were the only Irishman apart from me, good self, in Montmartre who was sober <laughs> on that day. No, 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 no. I was drinking. I hadn't been drinking for the previous. I think I think I went like six weeks off booze, and okay. then I decided to drink that going to Paris and. Um, I can remember snippets. I remember Wes Hulan's goal, which is very important. Seamus Coleman crossing in and, mm-hmm. and Wes put into the bottom corner. And um, I can remember Nerling falling. Which was that the France was or Park de Prince? It was Park de Prince, wasn't it? Uh, against uh, against Sweden, against Sweden, against, uh, against Sweden was the, that was in the uh, sorry, no, the Stade de France, it's under the yeah. France, yeah, yeah. And I, I remember standing up and nearly falling over because I was at the very front row of the top tier, and uh, a man grabbing me and pulling me back. And uh, and aside from that, there was like a moment where I was on top of uh, a port loo at like 2 a.m. outside the Moulin Rouge, not just me, but it took about 50 Irish people to help me down. Yeah, and uh, and then Jack and Kev looking at each other, going, "I think we better bring him home," and they did. Uh, I I walked past that uh, situation at about midnight, and it was like the last days of the Roman Empire or the Battle of Clontarf. I think is probably even closer. <laughs> Fucking bodies everywhere, but it was, uh, yeah. it was a brilliant night. But yeah. I, I hope it doesn't look anything like that, but we'll definitely do a live podcast today. You go back on the beer. Like we'll have to do Please that. do. <laughs> Joe, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you for being so honest and so frank about these things. Um, we look forward to having you back here. Is there anything in the near future that's going to bring... What do we have to do to bring you back to Stockholm, Joe? Uh, pay for my flights. <laughs> <laughs> that can be done. <laughs> yeah, that, look, I am, I'm in London. I have to do a year. I have a few things coming up. I want to come back to Stockholm as much as I possibly can. Um, I've never felt such a connection to a city, to a place, um, somewhat unexpected, but it was just one of the most incredible experiences of my life with some of the best people I've ever met. I'll, if I was, like I said, if I was doing anything else in my life, I'd be living there. I, if I meet any, I've met a couple of GA lads as well mm-hmm. who played in Yabla and stuff like that, which was gas and uh, over here in London. But anyone I meet that are looking for someone, something new in their life, I tell them to go to Stockholm. I said, look into it. It's, it's almost well people are starting to realize it now but like i do not understand how every single person wants because they know better english than us but once they get out of college once they get their trade get over there Mm. it's just better better life and just better people and it's just the best has to be seen to be believed doesn't it it does really does brilliant joe thanks for talking to me cheers phil thanks so much right well i know you two have been waiting very patiently for these tests yes Unfortunately, everything is on the go slow here at the moment. Do you have his results? Yes. Oh my God, are they serious? I'm afraid so. What is it? Just know that everything is treatable no matter how severe. Severe? Just what is it? I'm afraid it's, it's toxic. Masculinity. What's that? What's that? What's that? Did you catch it early? No. Not as early as we would like, unfortunately, but it's, it's never too late. Okay, is, is it fatal? Socially, yes. Not without some drastic lifestyle changes. Okay, like, like what? Well, we would um, look at how you see the world and work to change it to a more open and accepting point of view. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Change? Okay, okay, stop being so emotional, okay? It's it's fine. I, I can do all of that. What? You know, 
Change. Change. You can't change a bed sheet, Look, Connor. Look, you're just being dramatic, all right? You tell me so many changes and I'll do them. Well, that is actually a major symptom. What? Downplaying partner's feelings when they show emotion. All right, okay. There you go, a little snippet there from the film Toxic by Joe O'Neill, who you just heard from there. You'll find Joe on Twitter. Uh, his handle there is at Acting Joe. And somewhere in the middle of all that, you'll find uh, links to his YouTube channel and all that kind of thing. Absolutely hilarious guy. And um, fascinating to talk to him about the whole situation with alcohol and living in London and his love of Sweden and that kind of thing. And Jesus, I'm looking at the clock again, lads, and we're running away with ourselves again. Right, I better get me act together because uh, as I'm talking to you here, we're just about to head off down for the first Gaelic football tournament of the year in Copenhagen. God only knows how I'll get the chance to tell you about that because I'm hoping to put the old boots on. But uh, you never know, I might have a chat with a few of the lads from Malmo and from Gothenburg who'll be over there as well and we'll bring you some sort of a podcast next week again. And remember, next week I'll be talking to Paddy Kelly about writing and his book, We Can English, which is out now on Lease for Logs. So very helpful if you can buy that book and uh, there won't be a test or anything, you know, but if you do buy the book, have a read of it and then you'll have some idea of what we're talking about by the time we get round to it so um yeah i uh, hope you enjoyed that podcast with a little bit of a dramatic feel to it if there is anything get in touch hit me up on social media at philip o'connor you'll find me on linkedin you'll find me on facebook you have the facebook page for the irish and sweden podcast so I'm everywhere no excuse anything you need to tell me there's no excuse you have to be able to find me right i'm packing it in uh, powering down the lights and the microphones and everything here firing this up online i'll get the hell out of here and go kick a ball somewhere uh really hope to see many of you this weekend down in copenhagen and if i don't should look after yourselves and look after each other and we'll talk again very very soon indeed good luck